This episode of Reality Escape Pod is brought to you by Morty, virtual escape games, and Patreon supporters like you. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today's guest is Gabby Pascuzzi. Gabby is a gamer, puzzler, Survivor Season 37 castaway, where she was one half of Survivor's most iconic nerd alliance. Welcome, Gabby. Hi, thank you for the introduction and thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you on. Survivor David versus Goliath is actually playing on Netflix now, so there's a much wider audience being exposed to this as well. And I just watched the first episode before this interview and it was so much fun. It reminds me again why it's literally my favorite season of Survivor. Oh my gosh, that's so like surreal for me to hear because Survivor China is always one of the top seasons that I recommend to people. So that's like, it's just very funny. <laughs> but thank you. Yeah, there's been a lot of new fans of Survivor, I feel like over quarantine. And then so many of them have been coming out of the woodwork on my social media because they watched my season for the first time. And I'm like, overwhelmed because it's bringing back a lot of memories from like three years ago. <laughs> You sweet summer child. My first season is, I think, 14 years ago now. I'm really aging myself. Uh, Survivor China was in 2007. And then I was on again in 2015 for Survivor season 31. And it's really interesting to see how much the game has evolved since the first time I played. I didn't even know about hidden immunity idols at that point because we didn't really have them. That was still a new game mechanic. So my game was considered... Uh, pretty basic. And I think Survivor China was when you kind of started to see some strategy, but not a lot and not like how much you guys had to deal with in later seasons. Yeah, it's definitely evolved a lot. But I like the old school seasons too. So I sometimes like the best game is a very pure, simple game. So I love that too. Today's episode, we're going to be getting to know Gabby a little bit, digging into some of the basics of why gamers and puzzlers tend to enjoy Survivor. And then we're going to talk a little bit about this most recent season, season 41, because there's a lot of interesting things that have been done from a game design standpoint. Like so many of our guests, your love of gaming began with flash point and click games. When you look back, what's a game that made a really strong impression on you? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. And I have kind of a hilarious answer for it, which is Freddy Fish and the Magic Kelp. <laughs> <laughs> when I was like maybe five, at most seven years old. And this was not a flashpoint and click game, but I had all these CD-ROMs of Basically, they were like point-and-click adventure games, and they ranged from Freddy Fish to Putt-Putt. I think I had a Madeline one. So from a very young age, I was immersed in these cartoon worlds where the, the game mechanics were very simple, but I honestly think that's really what started my love for games and puzzles and also the intertwining of story with that. And I remember with Freddy Fish, it was sort of like a choose your own adventure in some ways. Some decisions that you made early on in the game had an effect. And I remember even as like a five or six year old playing it again and again and again to try to get every possible ending. 
And I honestly recently was feeling nostalgic for Freddy Fish and I went on YouTube to go watch some of the cutscenes. And it was weird how much I remembered like the jokes and the words that were said and the music. That was probably one of the very first computer games I ever played. And it's so simple, but it started that addiction into gaming. <laughs> I love it. This is by far the cutest answer I've ever gotten to that question. <laughs> wow. Back like in the 80s, we had one computer that I think we kept in the garage and I played a game called Sneakers. Anybody? It's like an old black and white game. I think my favorite point and click style game was Sanitarium, which I played in, I think, college. And I used to sit in the dark and play this. And it's like a creepy, scary narrative driven horror game it is so much fun i think i've played it like three times definitely a different audience than freddy fish and the magic <laughs> Tell. that's too scary for me i stay on freddy fish level only <laughs> these days you're big on puzzle strategy and story driven games as you were just saying what are some recent favorites so recently i played this really cute short puzzle game that i got on steam it's called gora goa oh i it, love that game i love gora goa <laughs> i played it on the on the phone because it's it has an app on iphone okay so yeah that reaction alone shows like how wonderful and it was immersive it told a story the puzzles were really interesting the puzzles interacted with the art. And I honestly, I found myself while playing that game wondering how they designed it. And so if I can try to explain this very visual game on a podcast, it was almost like you had these little tiles that you could move around next to each other almost to complete a picture. But depending on how you moved the tiles around, it completed maybe different parts of the picture or maybe your character could suddenly walk into the next frame or maybe something about the physics changed because you opened up a new part of the frame. It's like an interactive comic book where you're doing things to the panels, you're moving the panels around and the interactions that happen as a result of you moving the art affects the world. Yeah, so your character would change where they were depending on where you swapped the tiles and then the perspective would change all of a sudden and now you'd be in what was formerly the background or you'd be in the foreground. So it was just really cool. I don't think it took more than a few hours. So it was a nice immersive experience all in one go and it was emotional and visually stunning as well. I love games like that that strike that balance. It's such a stellar and innovative game. Yeah. Do you have a favorite board game? I feel like my favorite changes depending on what mood I'm in. I'm late to the train, but Terraforming Mars, I learned how to play on the physical board. And then my friend was like, it's also on the computer. And the computer version is just so fast that then I would play constantly with friends online. I don't think it's like super strategy heavy. It takes a while to learn some of it's a bit of the luck of the draw, the types of cards you get, but I just find it enjoyable and just fun and replayable. So you like strategy games more than like, say, social deduction or party games. I tend to be, I love party games. Like I like anything that lets you, that's more about being creative and making everyone laugh. Oh, I love party games too. I would say that's usually the go-to at like a family gathering. We'll do code names or jackbox of course we always like to throw up there werewolf secret hitler i used to play 
all these social deduction games on Twitch with a bunch of Survivor players, and we called it Secret Hands. Yes, that's what I almost <laughs> called it, which is the name of like a villain in a few Survivor seasons. Arguably the most notorious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I almost called it that. No, I, I do love games like that. And I also really love simple like Carcassonne and King Domino games where you might be tile planning. I honestly haven't met too many board games that I haven't liked yet because I've gotten really good recommendations from friends mostly that's the key over thanksgiving we played poetry for neanderthals which is one of the new games from exploding kittens and we played it because my mom was watching digital recon the virtual escape room convention we host and alan lee was one of the speakers and he's one of the designers of that game and my mom was drifting in and out of watching recon and sent me a text and was like that guy was funny. I want to play one of his games. And so that's what I brought over for Thanksgiving. Oh, nice. For anybody that doesn't know how Poetry for Neanderthals is played, it's a really, really fun game. I highly recommend this as a family party game because even like my eight-year-old niece could play it. Basically, you're given a word and you need to get everyone else to guess the word, but only using one-syllable words. And if you use a polysyllabic word, there is an inflatable club that says no, and someone from the other team needs to bop you on the head and say no. Yeah. And you lose a point. <laughs> you can keep adding as many words as you want, yeah. though. You yeah. can add as many words as you want, but it's only one syllable. That's funny. I feel like it would be really fun to just also purposely try to sound like a Neanderthal and be like, me talk on phone for you. <laughs> Long time. <laughs> it's a fun game. And it's what's interesting about it is that it really punishes people who use large words often. Um, yeah. Those of us who grew up reading the dictionary for fun. <laughs> it's also fun smacking somebody with a giant inflatable club. <laughs> it really is. Should we do the rest of the podcast in Neanderthals? <laughs> How long before people would turn that off? <laughs> oh, uh, also, David, I don't know if you knew this, but Gabby would come onto my Twitch stream and we did a lot of puzzle hunts together. Yeah, you were doing the uh, Cryptex hunt, this past year's Cryptex hunt together, right? Yeah, we did some of the Cryptex hunt. We also played all of Colby's Curious Cook-Off. Yeah, from Boxeroo in Boston. Which we loved. That was really fun. Is Boxeroo an escape room company? Boxeroo is a stellar escape room company in Boston. Those were fun. That's when I knew that we connected on these sorts of things like games and escape rooms and puzzles <laughs> because we could just sit on Zoom basically doing puzzles, which I don't think most people would think is fun, but we would do it for like three hours at a time. <laughs> All of our listeners <laughs> think it's fun. And we had a lot of people tuning in and watching because it's honestly fun watching other people do puzzles as well, because puzzles are, they're hard. And I like that these hunts, this is why I like escape rooms and I like doing puzzle hunts because they're collaborative. Like sometimes, especially as I get older, I'm kind of over being like super combative about stuff. So I like the collaboration part. We're on like a shared Google Sheets and we're like, what do you think of this? And it was a really good time. Yeah, I find it more fun because it's really tiring on your brain to try to do those things all by yourself because you just may not see something in the same way as your puzzle partner might. So really having those different perspectives is almost key to me to having fun in those puzzle hunts. 
Plus, we would build on something like somebody would be like, well, what if it's this? And you're like, and then like that one seed and then you water it and it grows and then you're and then suddenly the switch flips and you're like, oh, that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah, exactly. In the premiere of your Survivor season, you called yourself the Nerd Whisperer on account of your career as a technical writer. What do you feel are the elements of a good tabletop game rulebook? Oh, wow. I love this question. So for six years, I was a technical writer. I actually left that profession and I'm starting my PhD in psychology right now. So I'm doing something completely different. But while I was a technical writer, my job was basically to write instructions on how to do things, right? So I love that you're asking me about what makes good instructions for board games, because it's literally one of my pet peeves if it's not done well and invigorating when it is done well. And I'm always the person who wants to read the rules and explain it to everyone. And some people really like having that role and some people don't at all, right? But I love having that role. And I get annoyed when other people take the instructions because I'm like, I, you might have missed something. Let me just, let me check. Because, and then, you know? I thought I read you right. I thought I, ha- I thought I had you pegged as that particular type of nerd. You know, do you know what type of person I am, David? I, I am the person who will sit and explain an entire game. And then halfway through, somebody will pick up the book and be like, wait a minute, that's not the rule. This is not. And I'm like, give me that. And I have to tell. And I'm like, oh, oh, I'm like, oh, yeah, I skipped that part because it didn't seem relevant. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you're my worst nightmare, BG. This just happened with me and my brother the other day. We were playing this game. He got off Kickstarter. It was a card game. And we kept finishing the game within like five minutes. And we were like, well, this is a nice quick card game, I guess. And then I was like, something about this particular mechanic doesn't make sense. And then he read the book and he was like, oh yeah, we've been doing this step wrong this entire time. And then the game took like 15 minutes, which it was supposed to. So to answer your original question, it should clearly list out the order in which things should happen. So things should be sequential when possible. So there should be a quick reference of the order in which things happen. And then there should be conceptual information where I'm explaining to you what building a house means or getting a victory point means or how you earn money on your next round. They go together, but you need to have them separated out because you don't want to read a long list of instructions where each number, if I'm reading something that's 10 steps long, I don't want a whole explanation of how the money mechanic works in step two, right? It should just say, earn your money on this turn. And then like for money earning mechanics, like see this section. So there should be a lot of like cross referencing and clear areas for referencing material. So if I'm in the middle of the game and I go, oh, wait, I don't remember. Do I get two coins per whatever? Or do I get one coin? I can quickly go and find that thing. It's almost like there should be a table of contents that makes sense. And I also love when there are clarifications. Yeah. So at first when I saw those, the technical writer in me thought, well, it's a bit like maybe you haven't written the rule clearly to begin with, right? So in technical writing, I would equate that to like when you're reading instructions and it says note. Yeah. You know? And in technical writing, we say, try not to have too many of those, because if you have a thing scattered with notes, people are not really going to want to pay attention to it. And you should just write your instruction more clearly to begin with. 
So similarly, you don't wanna have too many clarifications, but I love when the perfect clarification is there when you're in the middle of the game with someone and you go, well, wait, does this card apply to this circumstance? And you look in the rule book and you're like, yes, there's a clarification. It doesn't work on this type of card. And you're like, oh, I'm so glad it's in there so you don't have to argue with your friends. Yeah, rules sometimes bounce off of each other in very strange ways. And when those edge cases are accounted for, it is such a beautiful thing. Exactly. Thank you for asking me that question. It was really fun to geek out on that in a way that I haven't before. I totally agree with your take on this. The other thing that I love when a rule book or someone teaching me the rules to a game does is spell out exactly what the win condition is up front before telling what the rules are. Because I have a friend who loves to just like take the rules on a journey. And I'm always like, please stop and just tell me, how do I win? Like, how does, like, what, what do all of these things do along the way? Like, what are they working towards? Yeah. Is it victory points? Is it killing someone? Is it stopping a thing? Like, what am I, what am I doing? Just start there. And then I'll be able to relate all of the rules as we go to my ultimate goal. Exactly. Yeah. You should always start with the objective. And I have the same pet peeve. And there's, a, there's actually a really funny sketch that I watched by this, um, I think they're from New Zealand sketch group and it's called something like explaining the rules of a board game. And I'll link <laughs> it to you guys afterwards. We've all been there where this person is describing it in intense detail and they're interrupting themselves every two seconds. And they're like, but then you need the magical potion to stop the blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, but it's just, it's so funny and I won't spoil the ending, but the ending of the video is also the most relatable thing to board game watchers. We'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> I'm glad nowadays there's a lot of videos on YouTube also that are explaining how to play because some of these games now have grown so complicated and so complex. We're taking a moment to thank our sponsor, Morty. Morty is a free app for discovering, planning, tracking, and reviewing your escape rooms and other immersive social outings. I believe in it so much that I have a stake in it as an advisor. PG, I have been tracking my escape rooms in a spreadsheet since day one. And knowing you, you're a little bit more chaotic than me. I don't think you've been tracking, have you? <laughs> okay, David. You know, I am not a spreadsheet kind of gal, okay? <laughs> uh, I have actually never tracked any of my escape rooms that I've ever played. I, I made like a small attempt at a list once, but it's so, it was so tedious. I'd have to type out the name of the escape room and that's if I even remembered it because somebody else is booking it for me. You have to list down all the people you played with, the dates, etc., etc. It was just too much for me. One of the best parts about Morty is that if your friends have played an escape room with you, they can tag you in it. And now, I don't even have to do any work. It'll show up automatically as played in my list. But honestly, it's so easy. You just find the rooms nearby where you live and you just swipe. You, you swipe and then it shows up as played. It's the easiest way to keep track of your escape rooms. You can learn more at mortyapp.com slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D to sign up and get a special badge for our listeners. Link and details in the show notes. Let's talk a little bit about Survivor. Let's kind of dig into some of the basics of what this game was and what it's become. Because I know you're a longtime fan. 
I'm curious, what was the initial appeal of the show to you? I was actually seven years old when the show very first started in season one. And it really was one of the first reality competition shows that pegged itself as a social experiment. And that really was not being done at the time. I mean, I'm acting like I have this deep analysis when I was seven, right? This is more of a retroactive (laughs) analysis. But I think as a seven-year-old, I was drawn in by the survival aspect of it, people forming this civilization. And even within the first season, it very quickly evolved to the very first winner was the first person to think of the concept of alliances, where he went, well, wait a minute, the goal of the game is for one person to be the sole survivor. And each week, we're going to vote people off of the island. Why don't we come up with this newfangled idea called an alliance and vote with each other against somebody? Because the other players were thinking of it as, I'm voting out this person who isn't helping around camp. And as soon as that social dynamic entered into it, I think that's when Survivor became a show that could last 41 seasons. I think if it was only a survival show, we wouldn't have gotten this far. It sort of started as a survival LARP where people were pretending that they were castaways on a beach, and to a certain extent they were. People were initially all about who's contributing and how they're contributing and do I like having this person around? And then it started to build into this strategic game where it started to become less and less about the survival element and more about surviving each other. Yeah. Props to Richard Hatch. He took it from like a hunter-gatherer society into like a full-blown modern civilization. Like it's Roman Empire politics. (laughs) So how has the appeal and your appreciation of Survivor shifted and changed over the years? I think because I grew up with it, it grew as I grew as a gamer and puzzler and also just as a social being. So by the time I was in my teens or early 20s, is probably when I could appreciate more of the cultural aspects, the social strategy, the dynamics surrounding gender or race or societal roles that people were being thrust into even in this social strategy game. So I think as the complexity of it evolved, I had also evolved in what was entertaining to me. And I like the new Survivor. I I really love the old school Survivor too, but I have less of a problem with the fast-paced nature of some of the newer game twists than maybe some of the more purist fans do. I'm right there with you. So there are a few different elements of Survivor. There's this social deduction game of trying to figure out who is actually on your side at any given time versus who is against you. There are the survival elements of cooking and boiling water and staying warm and all of that stuff. And then there are all of these challenges, which are either physical or intellectual, frequently with puzzles. And then on top of that, there is this newer mechanical game where they're adding in new powers and abilities that people can trigger at different times. There's lots of different types of gaming here. We probably don't have time to dig into all of them, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the role of puzzles in Survivor at this point. 
Puzzles in Survivor have mostly been used in the challenges. So whether that's to win a reward in the form of food, which is important when you're starving out there, or immunity, which basically grants you safety in the game, you can't be voted out that week. So usually you'll find a puzzle at the end of a challenge, like you'll have to run this whole obstacle course and then the last thing that you do is a puzzle. So those who have run the obstacle course faster usually have a time head start on the puzzle, but it can often be an equalizer where if you don't know how to do the puzzle, someone else can come from behind and easily catch up. And I personally liked this while I was on Survivor because I really like puzzles. So I felt like even if I wasn't as much of a physical competitor, I could maybe catch up on puzzles. I feel though that puzzles are slightly underused on Survivor because they're not used in the same way like an escape room would use it, where it's in this immersive experience. They've started to a little bit recently, so sometimes there will be a clue for an immunity idol that grants you immunity or an advantage. And it might have like a rebus puzzle on it, or it might have sort of a graphic that you have to decipher. They've done ones where the first letter of every sentence in the paragraph spelled out something. Yeah, that's right. And they've also done riddles now that I think of it. They'll also do, you know, like a rhyming limerick or two line phrase that you can collect a certain amount of clues. You could get it from the first clue, but it'd be a little harder. And then if you collect the next one, you have a little bit more of the poem. And then, you know, it basically might point to the low tide. You have to go out to that rock when it's low tide. And, but that might be kind of hidden in the wording of this riddle. And I really like when Survivor does that. I just wish there was more of it because I think it would really fit with the idea that Survivor is this immersive game. Yeah. Instead of just being able to stick your hand into a tree stump and find an idol, I want to see people really work for it. And I also want to see, like, it's fine if you can do that, but people that don't necessarily can't leave camp or have to use another means of finding it are given that opportunity, right? I would like to see more of these kind of hidden daisy-chained clues. In season 40, when they were on the island, they were given these chests, that were locked with like combination lock style locks. And when they were given the clue, wrapped around the clue was like a little necklace thingy that had a series of seashells or something. Seashells strung onto a string with knots tied in between. And one of them, I think it was Natalie Anderson, figured out that that was the combination to the lock. It was like three shells and the knot, five shells and a knot, so forth and so on. And then, then this sneaky bastard went and smashed everyone else's necklaces so no one else could figure out the right combination. (laughs) (laughs) Iconic. Which is iconic. It was brilliant. It was so fun to watch. As a viewer, I've always loved the presence of the puzzles, especially in the challenges, if only because as a viewer, my perception is that it provides a little bit of protection and value to a lot of the people that I find myself rooting for, who tend to be less physical and more useful in the puzzle. And I really enjoy that that's a part of the game because it allows different people with different types of ability to shine and be valuable at different points in the game and contribute in this team environment where a group talking about, well, we need the strongest team that might literally mean making sure you keep your best puzzler. Like you said, on the first episode of my season, again, my good buddy Christian, spoiler alert, don't listen, I guess, if you're going to watch my season, (laughs) 
for this challenge. Solves a slide puzzle in record time. And this is our first time meeting this guy because it's like 10 minutes into the game. It's also at this point edited in a way that you are completely confident that this guy is about to get destroyed <laughs> by this challenge and by the other team. That was the way that it was portrayed. This was also kind of a fun mechanic where they had one team pick who they thought was the weakest members of your team, the Davids. Yeah. So they picked him as one of the weakest ones, and they were allowed to put forth who they thought was their strongest members, mm -hmm. right? So you've got the weakest, who they thought was your weakest members versus who they thought were their strongest members. But then they allowed your team to choose the tracks of this kind of obstacle course that you guys would run. So now you guys were able to assign yourselves what you considered the easiest track and assign the hardest track to the other team. So I think that was also funny was because they also picked him thinking he was going to be the weakest. Yeah, I'm glad you reminded me of that because even I didn't remember how that worked. And we did strategize a lot about that. It was like there were three portions to the obstacle course and you had three options for each or something like that. So we did strategize both what we thought our competitors would be able to do and what we thought they would be bad at. So for example, they choose this huge guy. We chose one of the obstacles was sort of, you had to stand on a plank and then move the next plank over. Cause we thought, well, maybe this large man will not be able to maneuver these planks. And then little did we know, or I can't remember if maybe we knew this during the strategizing session, but basically after all is said and done and Christian wins this slide puzzle, he's a robotics professor and he goes, yeah, I've written an algorithm for how to solve slide puzzles before. <laughs> so it was just like the perfect introduction to him and also the concept on Survivor that you never know what challenges and puzzles are going to be out there and you might find one that's just perfectly suited to your skills and really anyone has a chance at winning survivor potentially because of that it was also the most perfect metaphor for the theme of the season the david versus goliath theme they couldn't have written a more perfect opening to the season if they tried <laughs> seriously Actually, I have a random question about that. When you were strategizing together, I imagine that it was explained that there was a slide puzzle at the end of this whole series of challenges. Did Christian tell the group, like, I got this, I can crush a slide puzzle? He definitely said, I've got this, I can definitely crush a slide puzzle. Basically, Jeff actually will walk us through the challenge so he can kind of show you, okay, well, when you get to this point, here's the knot that you untie or whatever. So we could see the slide puzzle and they're probably thinking most people can't figure out how to do a slide puzzle visually in their head. And also for the listeners, it wasn't a slide puzzle where it was like one of those nine by nine, like pictures, like a logo. It, that would be too easy. I think most survivor players know how to do that. It was a pretty complicated slide puzzle. You had to slide a piece out of the rectangle that it was in, but it was surrounded by a bunch of different pieces. It's like that game Unblocked. Yes, Unblocked. One of those parking puzzles where you have to get a car out through the side and make a path for it. Yeah, it was one of those, exactly. So I remember him during the strategizing definitely saying, I can solve the puzzle for sure. And I think he even said, I got a good look at it. I think I know what to do. <laughs> He's like, I've already mentally solved it. Yeah, he was like solving it in his head. <laughs> But I don't think he said the thing about the algorithm until afterwards. And I think afterwards, being friends with him, he told me like, 
Yeah, I almost, I didn't want to say it because I didn't want people to think I was like this smart engineer guy that knows how to code, but it just came out because how could it not if something that perfect falls into your lap and you're in front of Jeff Probst on TV? Like I could, I can't imagine I would be like telling everyone about all the algorithms I've written. <laughs> also, the adrenaline is rushing through. Yeah. And also, he's not exactly someone who can uh, successfully hide his intelligence. No, yeah, he he looks like a like a typical nerd. <laughs> he did it in five seconds. I remember Jeff Probst saying that. He's like, five seconds. He's like, this is a record for the fastest it's ever been solved. <laughs> and people don't realize at home, but sometimes these challenges take hours and they edit yeah. it, you know, into the most exciting parts. So it looks like it took 10 minutes or whatever. But some of these really take hours and hours for people to solve these things. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Virtual Escape Games. Virtual Escape Games specializes in virtual team building adventures for teams anywhere around the globe, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. PJ, I know you have met the founder of Virtual Escape Games back during all the quarantines. How did you meet George? George is a huge Survivor fan. And he had reached out to Adam Klein, who was the winner of Survivor Millennials versus Gen X. Spoiler alert. Uh, he reached out to us and invited us to come try playing his game. And we played it and we just loved it. I had such a good time that I recommended it to my entire escape room group. And that's how I ended up becoming friends with George. And you know, I'm so glad that he sponsored this podcast because I really just love supporting good people. George previously worked at escape rooms and over quarantine, he ended up creating his own puzzles and creating his own games. And he told me that he did this because he wanted to give back to the community. So he was running these games for free over quarantine. And it was just basically pay what you can afterwards. And he said it was totally fine. If some people couldn't afford to pay, that was great. If you could, of course, that's amazing. But he really wanted to offer a way to entertain people at home and just spread a little joy during some difficult times. His business has really taken off and I'm just so thrilled that he is continuing to give back by supporting our podcast. So thank you so much, Virtual Escape Games. For non-hosted games, one to six players, you can get 20% off using the code REA20. And for your team building adventures, can also knock off 20% with the code TB20. All of this is available for you at virtualescapegames.com. These details are in the show notes. Are there any puzzle types that you wish would just go away that they would remove from Survivor? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I'm going to give a biased answer because it was a puzzle that I had a hard time on which was because it was collaborative. And what you had to do was it was part physical and part puzzle where we were holding up these platforms by a rope. So each person on the team and you had to be far enough away from the platform that your rope had some tension. And if you let it slack or if you pulled too hard, it would wobble. So you were building the puzzle vertically on these platforms fitting it together sort of like Tetris pieces, but all of us had an individual platform. So like if one person's 
platform moved and your piece was connected to theirs because you were standing next to them, your puzzle piece would fall. It's sort of a group dexterity challenge. Yeah, and so it was dexterity and it was it was visually kind of confusing because it was almost like it was these rectangle Tetris pieces that crisscrossed. You basically had to walk forward towards the platform and pick up a piece while keeping the rope the exact amount of taut that it should be and placing it there. And one design thing I think in particular that made it really difficult was we didn't realize that the blocks were double-sided and they were painted basically in inverse colors so that we, the contestants, can see the logo or whatever it was that we were building, but also the cameras on the other side filming us have a picture of the logo. And I think they had tried to circumvent that basically by being like, well, this side's orange with a yellow outline and this side's yellow with an orange outline. But when you're out there starving, you can't really tell the difference. So we're trying to put these pieces together and it took us maybe half an hour. Like PG said, they last for a long time before we realized like we're not even looking at the right side of the puzzle or like half, you know, the people on that side were doing the orange side and the people on this side were doing the yellow side. And we're wondering why the words are mirroring each other because we're building literally like mirror image puzzles. That's what happened to us in Survivor Cambodia with doing a puzzle. I I was so triggered because I'd forgotten about that. And hearing you say that, I'm like, yes, because like half of our puzzle was reversed because they need to make it look good for the cameras. The other thing that drives me nuts too is that when you're working on a puzzle, you have to work on it on the frame or whatever so like you can't lay it out and then rearrange it you have to rearrange it in place which takes so much longer and so like i feel like it makes us look really dumb because they're like well why are they doing it like that but it's because you can't assemble two pieces on the floor and then pick them both up and put them in together yeah that's a really good point i forgot about that and it makes it really hard because i I do jigsaw puzzles i i know how to puzzle but it's way different when you're doing it vertically or yeah you can't puzzle off to the side while your partner is working on it you don't really have time to like sort it by color or anything like that so it's just like a completely different strategy to what you, you would do if you were used to playing jigsaw puzzles whenever i hear people ranting about player performance and jigsaw puzzles on survivor i'm always like I'm a competent jigsaw puzzler, but I've never had to do one in the sweltering heat or rain after just having run a ridiculous physical challenge with a competitive team against me and all of these other rules about how I'm allowed to move and what I'm allowed to do with the pieces. I'm in no position to judge any of that. Speaking of solving puzzles under strange circumstances, this most recent season had the infamous day one sweat or savvy challenge where each tribe had a choice. They could either have two members painstakingly fill massive drums with seawater using small buckets or solve an elaborate triangle counting puzzle in a single guess. And we'll put it in the show notes, but it's one of those puzzles where there's a triangle and there's a whole bunch of other lines through it and you have to count how many triangles are in it. All of the tribes chose to do the sweat challenge to painstakingly fill the buckets because they were, I think, correctly afraid of having to guess this in one guess. Well, the way it worked was only two members were allowed to do the saltwater challenge. Tiny little buckets, and they had to get the water from somewhere that was like 
a 10 minute walk, you it was know, a hike. So, like a hike. Yeah. So, so it's not like you could just run directly back and forth. It was pretty arduous. Hey folks, I'd like to take a moment to talk to you about something that I've been working on with a bunch of people from the team over here for years. We've been wanting to host Recon, the Reality Escape convention in person in Boston for a very long time. And circumstances have halted that effort, but not this year, we're doing it. August 21st and 22nd of 2022, in Boston, Recon is happening. We are blending escape room conference with the tours we've been producing for years to produce a proper escape room convention. You'll meet people, you'll play games, you'll hear wonderful talks. It's gonna be a great time, and I truly hope that you come and join us. Tickets for Recon are available now. You can learn more at realityescapecon.com. Details in the show notes. I'm curious to hear what are your reactions to both this puzzle and kind of the fan reaction on Twitter? Because I think that was almost as interesting as watching what went down. <laughs> I think PG and I were both laughing about this on Twitter because she and I are both pretty proficient puzzlers. And I think you and I both said, you know, at first you have that instinct where it's like, yeah, do the triangles. If you look at this puzzle though, you can tell it's not one of the standard ones where it's easy to count. It was very complex. This was the hardest version of that type of puzzle that I've ever seen. Yep. I started and I could tell that I was missing some or I would lose track. And I thought, okay, if I was out there, first of all, the social strategy comes into it where you don't want to be the person putting out a wrong guess because that's such an easy way for your tribe to vote you out first since this was on the first day. So you don't even want to put yourself out there. And since they only got one guess, that is just too deadly. And so I remember counting and I think I got up to like 45 and I was already skeptical. Like I was like, oh, I can't remember if I counted that one. You also have no way of writing out there. There's no pens. So you can't like get a pen and highlight the triangles. People were saying you could use sand. Show me how you could drop 45 triangles in the sand and like not lose track. I don't think you could. And a whole bunch of those triangles were really about the nuance of the geometry. There's a couple of really fine lines in there where the difference between three sides and four sides was a matter of a very small margin of error. My initial gut instinct was, it's four hours to count some fucking triangles and everyone chose hard labor for four hours instead. <laughs> LMAO. Uh, I have since walked back my stance on it because <laughs> you are allowed only the one guess. And even with like my whole puzzle group, it took us hours to count these and everybody's guesses were wrong. So... <laughs> We posted this in our Patreon Discord channel. We posted a picture of this puzzle the day after this episode aired, and nobody got it right. And to your point, what people were saying on Twitter, so I looked at the replies to the official Survivor account, tweeted out the picture and said, well, what would you have done? There were at least four replies that I screenshot and reposted where people very confidently said, 17. <laughs> Just for the listeners, like I said, I got to 45 and was like, I think I missed some and I won't give away what the, the final answer was. 
But 17 was very clearly like you could pretty quickly get to 17 and there were clearly more. And so I, I think I retweeted it and I said to any survivor players, if you're ever worried about the armchair players out there who are like, give you a hard time for not being good at the game or good at puzzles. Just remember, this is the armchair gaming that we have from the side. This season added in a mechanic that feels straight out of a party game in the form of immunity idol activation keywords. The basic concept is that each tribe has a hidden immunity idol hidden on their beach, and when someone finds it, it's a dead idol, and it comes with a punishment in the form of the person who found it cannot vote until it becomes active, and it can only be active when all three idols are found and the person who found it says a strange and funny phrase that was prescribed to them by the idol in a public conversation. One example of this is, I truly believe that butterflies are dead relatives saying hi. I'm curious what you think of applying some of these more entertaining for the audience mechanics. What's the value of that versus some of the pure mechanics or pure strategy or the social deduction that are more of the roots of the game? I think it was really entertaining for the audience because what ended up happening was somebody would say a phrase no one else had found theirs yet. So then the next time they had to find a way to say the phrase again in a new way, hoping that maybe by then someone had found it. So for us as the audience, I think we were laughing a lot and, and found it funny to watch these people say these strange lines. As a player, I don't think I would have appreciated it because part of the draw of finding an immunity idol is it's a secret advantage that you hold in your pocket unless you tell anyone that grants you immunity when you choose to play it. And there's so much strategy around when you choose to immunize yourself and not wasting it and not going home with it in your pocket. And I fear that this goofy, funny mechanic took away that ability for the idols to be secret, which then takes away some of the fun strategies surrounding people's deployment of those idols. Not to mention, they also had another new advantage out there, which was the knowledge is power advantage. And basically, you were given a chance to ask one person at one point in time, do you have a hidden idol on you? And if they did, they had to hand it over to you. So how do you balance all this different type of mechanics with the gameplay and how Survivor is supposed to be played? Yeah, I think having both of those mechanics in there was, like you said, it was unbalanced because the fun of something like the knowledge of power advantage would be you have to use social deduction to figure out who has the idol so that you can steal it from them. And it being in the same game as when everyone has said it out loud and now we kind of know who has it, it made the knowledge is power overpowered, in my opinion, although it ultimately was not even played successfully. So maybe it's a bit harder to play than I thought. But I think that overall is something Survivor struggles a little bit with is balance. Like I would imagine that if it were a board game that I was playing, I would be pissed if my friend got that card that was like knowledge of power. I'd be like, oh, that card is so overpowered. I'm so mad that you got that. Like it feels <laughs> a bit unbalanced. That's a great way of putting it. Thinking about it in terms of if this was in just a tabletop game that you're playing and not a game for a million dollars where you've 
left your job for two months and are being broadcast on international television. <laughs> I mean, I have a lot to say about advantages or mechanics that nobody's aware of. Could you imagine playing a game and you're playing right. a board game and suddenly somebody whips out this card? Reverse Uno. What? Look, Gabby's looking through the rule book. She's like, I don't see anything about a Reverse Uno card in here. What's, <laughs> you know, like, where did that come from? <laughs> That's a really good point. And I think it's something Survivor has to figure out because this season, Jeff Probst was describing the game as a monster. And he's, he was using this as a metaphor of the game's going to twist and turn. It's going to come for you. You don't know how, you don't know when. And like you're saying, PG, I also agree. I don't think it's fair to not know what mechanics are in the game. I think at the beginning of the season, they need to say, here are all the powers that are in the game. Maybe they don't have to tell them about twists, like, oh, you're going to get swapped on day 12, or you're going to merge on day 17. They don't have to tell them those, but they should be able to tell them there's a power in the game that can cause someone to steal an idol from you. Maybe they don't have to say exactly how it works, but then maybe that makes people play it a little bit closer to their chest. On the subject of rules, how are the rules of Survivor conveyed to you players? Is there a rule book that you're handed? Are you explicitly told, like, you're not allowed to punch anybody? Because I know that there are rules. They've talked about them. So for any wrestling-style challenge, we were just told basically no choking. On our wrestling challenge, they literally said, you can do whatever you want. Just remember that these are people you still need to play with, and eventually you will want them to hopefully vote for you. This was also pre merge too so oh my gosh and that was the challenge that you had somebody doing it naked right yeah that was the challenge where we had to throw people off of boats into the water and we were wrestling and it, it was pretty brutal <laughs> i still have scars from that challenge oh my gosh <laughs> yeah so i guess the rules are conveyed in the contract that we sign and so it does say things like you can't use physical force, like legalese, but a lot of the verbiage in it is at the producer's discretion. You know, someone will be eliminated every three days at the producer's discretion. You will compete for immunity at the producer's discretion. Everything is like that. So there are certain game show rules that they have to abide by. I know some of them are like the order in which things happen is predetermined and the types of challenges that there are are predetermined. That is to avoid it being like, oh, well, we really want so-and-so to win, and they're really good at this thing, so we're going to make this challenge next. So that's all predetermined and has to be because it's legally a game show with prize winnings. But there's so many asterisks in there about, like, twists may happen at the producer's discretion that, like, they literally can just be like, yeah, there's this new thing called an idol nullifier, which just makes your idol not work. Too bad! <laughs> So not a great rule book is what I'm getting. <laughs> yeah, I, I have some notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gabby, thank you so very much. It has been a pleasure having you on. And if you want to hear more from Gabby, you can uh, check out our Patreon exclusive bonus episode. She'll be joining us there. Thanks for having me. Where can people find you on social media? Yeah, I am on Twitter at Gabby Pascuzzi. My Twitch, if you like gaming, I am on a hiatus right now, but I do have plans to return to it, is twitch.tv slash gabscuzzi, G-A-B-S-C-U-Z-Z-I. 
And I guess I have an Instagram at Gabscoozy as well, but I honestly get so overwhelmed with Instagram now because the Netflix fans are coming out of the woodwork and like I put myself on private even though I have too many followers for private to make any sense. But then like every once in a while, I'll just go public and accept everyone. I'm, it's just chaos over there. I don't know what I'm doing with it. But yeah, pretty much you can look me up on anything. Gabscoozy or Gabby Pescoozy is going to be one of them. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. The Reality Escape Pod is produced by Lisa Spira, edited by Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media, and brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. I'd like to take a minute to talk to y'all from the heart. PG and I put a lot into making all of these episodes, as do the team that is off microphone. My wife, Lisa, Steve, our editor, put a ton into producing this podcast. All of this is made possible because of the support from our Patreon community. That financial support allows us to invest in the production value of what we're making and allows us to inch our way towards making this into a proper career. It's hard to monetize content these days, and our Patreon community really does allow us to do that. And we're really trying to grow. So we put out extra bonus episodes for our patrons. We have a spoilers club for higher level backers. We've got a Discord chat, and we're always adding new things to the mix for our patrons. So if you love what we're doing, please consider supporting us. It means more than you could ever imagine and you get a whole bunch of extra content too. Thank you again to all our patrons. If you aren't one, I hope you become one. Okay, so here is a story about gaming on Survivor, something that wasn't shown on the show, which is earlier we were talking about ways that they've incorporated puzzles into Survivor. And one way they did it on my season was there was an advantage hidden at the merge. And so at the merge, we all sit at this feast table and we're all eating for like the first time all game. And there had been this decal, this decoration on the table and also on all of our individual napkin holders that said, everything you need for the merge is right here. And it had sort of like an 80s style graphic of this like curved palm tree with some birds flying by it. I immediately had a gut feeling that this was a clue of some sort. So I remember thinking in my head, like, does the number of birds have something to do? And I was also, I clocked this, like I said, because it was also on each of the individual napkin holders. So it was like they wanted you to take note of it, right? And so the whole day I was thinking about it, like, what could this mean? What could this mean? I'm sure there's some kind of advantage because even the wording, everything you need for the merch is right here. The day goes by, I, I still haven't cracked the code, so I go to sleep. I have one of those like cartoon moments where in my sleep, my eyes pop open and I'm like, oh my God, I know what it is. Because at the end of our beach was a curved palm tree exactly like that in the image. And so it was dark, everyone was sleeping, and I thought to myself like, okay, I'm not gonna go now because I'm sleeping next to people, they're gonna notice. I'm going to go first thing in the morning and go to that dang tree because I know that that's what the clue means. It's like when you're in an escape room and you just know that that's the answer, it clicked. 
So I went there and I'm digging and I'm looking around the base of this palm tree and it's not there at all. And I go back and I tell one of my Alliance members, they go and look with me. I talk about it in the show. Like the producers are asking me, oh, why do you keep going over there? So then I'm thinking like, okay, it's definitely here. Why do they keep asking me about this? Days later, I find out that somebody else already found it. And that person was my Alliance member that I had asked to go look with me. So it wasn't there when we went to look, but he just didn't want to tell me that he had found it already. And the way that he found it was he didn't figure out the clue when it was presented at the feast. He, after the feast, went to tree mail, which is where we get our like little notes that tell us what the next challenge is and found the image in there. And so he did put it together from the image, but I just feel like mine was smarter because I was already thinking about it from the feast. Like, obviously, if you see it on a piece of paper, you know, after the fact, you're gonna like be thinking about it more. Meanwhile, I was trying to like piece all these little things together. So I just wanna say I would have found that if I had thought of it like six hours earlier. <laughs> Early bird gets the worm, Gabby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so clearly they just figured, oh, well, no one went to go get it, so we're just going to put a clue in this thing. <laughs> they just needed to let me simmer on it overnight. 